Wow. They did a great job. And who knew Pastor Derwin could drop some lines like that? I think it's not fair that he can preach and drop lines. No, but let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. I thank you for the gathering of your people that we get to come together to worship you. Uh, We also get together together to understand how we can engage culture better. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us now ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind to understand how we can engage uh, the world in a way that is healthy, that is gospel-centered, that is missional, that many, many men, women, boys, and girls might come to faith through the way we engage culture so well. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, you know, I know what probably some of you are thinking. You're thinking, my goodness, Hamilton through the eyes of the gospel, like really, really, Josh, is that, I mean, what in, what in the world? Well, I hope by the end of June, you will go, oh, okay, that's why. And let me just go ahead and share with you that one of my deep passions in life is to help the church, help Christians engage culture better. Because I would say that in the last hundred years or so, we have not really done a good job. And right now in the 21st century, we are not doing a good job engaging culture well. And so that's the reason why we're going to take June and July each year, and we're going to do cultural engagement series. So in the month of June, we will do our A&E series, which stands for arts and entertainment. And then in July, we will do TED series, which are theological educational discourses around distinctives of the Christian faith and how we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And so when it comes to engaging culture well, well, there there are some things that we have to wrestle with. The first thing that we actually have to wrestle with is we need to figure out how we view culture, how we view culture. Now, there are many Christians that they will look at the culture and they'll just say, man, culture is bad. But I want us to know that culture in and of itself is not Bad. Now, something happened a few hundred years ago called the Enlightenment. And coming out of the Enlightenment, at some point, the church started to see things in a a separatist way. Uh, They would divide the secular and the sacred. They would see what happens six days of the week, Monday through Saturday, as secular, and what takes place one day of the week as sacred. And anybody who worked for that sacred institution, they had a sacred profession. But I want you to understand that's not what the scriptures teach. Actually, what the scriptures teach from the very beginning, from Genesis 1 all the way through, is that every area of life is sacred in the eyes of God. Just think about individually, we are created as image bearers. God created us in his image. So we have God's divine stamp and fingerprint on our life. Therefore, just our life is sacred because of the dignity and value of being created in God's image. Think about relationally. We are to image God, who is one God and three persons in all of our relationships. So, So every relational encounter is a sacred encounter. And then you think about vocation. 
So in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis, we see that mankind is to subdue the raw materials to make something of the world. So when you look at the spheres of society or the spheres of, of culture, I mean, you got arts and entertainment, you got business and commerce, you got uh, government, you got recreation, you, you got all of these spheres of society. And so those are the cultivation of raw materials. And I want you to know that it's not just pastoring or working for a church that is sacred. If you're a plumber, if you are a teacher, if you are an accountant, if you are a doctor, if you are a businessman, businesswoman, that is a sacred vocation because God has given you those skills and abilities to glorify him. It's not secular, it's sacred. And then when we cultivate all of these things, it brings about community and then civilization. And at the very beginning, God, he designed us and he gave us this purpose so that we might build a God-glorifying culture and civilization. And so I want us to realize that culture is ultimately good because God wanted us to make culture. But then we know something happened, didn't it? Adam and Eve, what happened to Adam and Eve? They sinned. They, they blew it. So now we have to process, or we have to think and process culture, which leads to number two. So we, we need to process and think about culture in a deep biblical way. Because of the fall, because of the brokenness, because of the sin, uh, there, there's things that we're going to have to look at culture and we're going to have to process it. And there's at least six ways that we can process culture. Let me, let me show you. We can create culture. So that's why when it comes to vocation and you're a business person and you're, you've created a business or you've created a nonprofit, maybe you wrote a book, uh, maybe you are a cook and you create, like you, you, we can create culture. So as, as Christians, we ought to be part of creating culture. But then there's the idea of celebrating cultures. That's why we can look at a play like Hamilton. And it, I mean, I'm telling you, it's a sensation. It is a masterpiece. I've seen it in person. I've seen it on Disney Plus. And we can celebrate good culture. And then we can actually consume it. Because not, not only can we celebrate it, but we can actually consume it. So every time you watch a movie or you're, you're binge watching something on Netflix because you love it so much. Or you go to your favorite restaurant. That is consuming culture. And that's just one of the ways that we, we process it and think about it. But we can also critique culture. There are things that happen in the larger culture where we're like, you know what, that, that like I understand the, the, the kind of the good underneath, but they're distorting it. And, and so we, we need to gently critique them and suggest a, a, another way. But then there are some things in culture that we just flat out condemn it. We, we, we say, no, that, that is not of God. That is not a good value. That value actually goes against uh, what is human, humanly good because of what God has outlined. And so we condemn it and we reject it outright. And then there are things that we're going to cite it. We're going to cite it. Well, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is engaging a, a group of non-believers at a place called Mars Hill or the Areopagus. And in his talk, 
He actually cites their own poets to help them understand the connection to what they have written to understanding the God of the Bible. And so what we're doing in this series is that we are citing Hamilton to help you connect the dots between Hamilton and understanding Jesus. And then the third thing that we have to wrestle with is we, we, we live in but not of the culture. See, this is, where the, this is where the church is running into issues right now, is that they're trying to be in and of the culture, but Jesus came in the world, but he wasn't what? Of the world. So as his followers, we got to learn to be in the world, but not of the world. But I'm about to say something, and I know some of you, I mean, some of you go, go hmm, or some of you going to balk at it, but, but God has not called us. Here's the thing. God has not called us to be culture warriors, but witnesses to culture. Yep. Now, now you don't have to clap. Just don't clap because, I, again, I'm not trying to cause any division. But if you look at scripture, and, if, uh, and I'm going to go a little bit deeper in this on extra takes, but I promise you, if you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, when Israel was kicked out of the promised land and they no longer had their theocracy and God sent them into Babylon, God did not call them to wage war on the culture there in Babylon. And then Jesus, when he came, the Roman Empire was in charge and Jesus never declared war on the Roman Empire. And then Paul, who was the greatest missionary who ever walked planet earth was a Roman citizen and traveled thousands of miles and never told the church to wage culture against the Roman empire. So when it comes to living in the world, we are not to be of the world. We are to be witnesses to the world. And so that's why we got to learn to engage culture well. So why Hamilton, Josh? Why, why Hamilton? Well, I love Hamilton. So it's a selfish reason. I'm just playing. Like, I do actually love Hamilton. But it's been around for seven years. Millions have actually seen the play in, in person at, in, at Broadway. And then that doesn't even include the millions of people that have seen it all over the, the world. Like my wife and I, we saw it here in Orlando. And then when they put it on Disney+, Plus, it was the most watched film at that time when they put it on that platform. I love the creativity. It has won every theatrical prize you could think of. 11 Tony Awards, one Pulitzer Prize, and it is actually based upon an historical figure, Alexander Hamilton, a founding father of America. And so here's what I want to do. I want to use this cultural phenomena to help demonstrate and teach the church how we can take something so familiar and known in our larger culture and process it through the eyes of the good news of King Jesus. How we can process it through the eyes of scripture. Now, more specifically, here's what I'm, I'm going to shoot to do this morning. And I'm gonna put it up here on the screen. I wanna take the logic of Lin-Manuel Miranda. So he is the creator of Hamilton. He wrote every song in the play. So I'm gonna take his logic in the creation of Hamilton and the celebration of Alexander Hamilton and I wanna use that same logic on what we know of Jesus and see what conclusion we should arrive at if we were intellectually honest. We do live in a society where there are a lot of people, they're not intellectually honest. But, but what we're gonna to do today, we're gonna to use the logic of the creator of Hamilton 
And, and his own words of what he wants us to think about Alexander Hamilton, and we're going to apply that same logic to Jesus and to see what kind of conclusions should people come to when they hear all of the things about Jesus. So you ready to dive in? All right, let's dive in and let's look at the lyrics of the first song, Alexander Hamilton. So he starts out and he writes, how does an illegitimate orphan, son of a harlot, and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished, see now I'm dropping lines like, hey, there we go, and squalor grow up to be a hero and a scholar. This is interesting, hero and a scholar. You do realize that Alexander Hamilton was not born in the colonies. He was born in the Caribbean and he was raised in poverty. But when you look at his life, he had risen out of uh, poverty. He has somehow made a name for himself and he became a hero and a scholar. And so at the very beginning, Lin-Manuel Miranda wants you to know that there is something different about this man. He goes on. The $10 founding father, and what he means by that is that on the $10 bill, who's on the $10 bill? Alexander Hamilton. He was without a father because his father left and let, well, here's the other thing is that his father and his mother, they were never married. So he was born out of wedlock, which is why he's referred to as an illegitimate son. But he grew up without a father, got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter. By 14, they placed him in charge of a trading charter. At 14! So something's different about this kid. And so again, Miranda wants to draw you into, man, that this, this is a fascinating story about an individual who, you, when you look at where he grew up, he should not have gotten to where he was, but he's doing that because he's smart and he's working hard. So we go on. And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away across the waves, he struggled and kept his guard up. Inside, he was longing for something to be a part of. I think this line resonates with every human being because we long to be part of something. So here is a, who, here's a teenager. Man, he, he doesn't, he's lost his family, as you'll see here in just a second. He's all alone, but he wants to be part of something. And then I would go even a step further and say, not only do we want to be part of something, but we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And he was willing to beg, steal, borrow, or barter. If I could just be part of something, I'll do anything. I'll do whatever it takes. Then we continue on. Then a hurricane came and devastation reigned. I mean, so this is a, this is a guy who went through so much pain, through so much loss and grief. Our man saw his future drip, dripping down the drain. But he put a pencil to his temple, connected to his brain, and he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his pain. So now he's drawing us into really the genius behind Alexander Hamilton, which was his ability to write. And so he, he's writing, even as a teenager, a testament to his pain. And, 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 and people are going, oh my gosh, this, this kid is brilliant. And then we go on to the song. Well, the word got around. They said, this kid is insane. Man took up a collection just to send him to the mainland. Now, this is interesting. So his community there, they actually see some value in Hamilton. They, they see the genius behind him. They, they see the potential of this young man. So they take up an offering. They take up a collection so that they can send him to the British colony 
the colonies so that he can get an education. But they wanted to make sure that he didn't forget where he came from. And here's what they, they knew. And the world is going to know your name. What's your name, man? And here he is. His name is Alexander Hamilton. Every single person, every single person, they want people to know their name. They want to be known. So once again, Miranda is saying, hey, th this man, like the community knew that this man was going to be known. And what is his name? Alexander Hamilton. But, but here's the thing. Not everybody is going to be an Alexander Hamilton. Not everybody is going to have the world know your name. But I got great news today. Even though the world may never know your name, there is a God in heaven who has created you in his image. And not only does he know your name, but he knows how many hairs are on your head or how many hairs aren't on your head. <laughs> so Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done, but... This is so good too. I haven't said this in any, any gathering yet. He had to do something to make his name known. I want you to understand that the Bible teaches that you don't have to do anything for God to know you. But just you wait. Just you wait. He's got a million things he's got to do. And, and so Miranda, he's inviting us into as a play, just wait of all of the things that Alexander Hamilton's going to do. So when he was 10, his father split, full of it, debt ridden. Two years later, see Alex and his mother bedridden, half dead, sitting in their own sick, the scent thick. And Alex got better, but his mother went quick. So now we get this picture that at 10, his dad leaves. And then not too long after that, his mom dies. And then look at what happens. He moved in with the cousin. The cousin commits suicide, left him with nothing but ruined pride, something new inside a voice saying, Alex, you got to fend for yourself. I just want you to understand the, the scriptures teach that when you go through hell, when you go through hurt, when you go through loss and grief, you ain't got to fend for yourself because you got a God fighting for you. I'm saying all this new, this is just, the Lord's giving it to me right now. But he started retreating and reading every treatise on the shelf. There would have been nothing left to do for someone less astute. He would have been dead or destitute without a sin of restitution. Started working, clerking for his late mother's landlord. Like, here's what Miranda is saying. There, there, there's something special about this, this young man. Because if it was anybody else, they would have died in their state. They would have died in their condition. It was just too much to overcome but not for Alexander Hamilton. So he's trading sugarcane and rum and all the things he can't afford, scamming for every book he can get his hands on, planning for the future. See him now as he stands on the bow of a ship headed for the new land in New York. You can be a what? So I love this. And again, this isn't the thesis of where I'm going, but, but I would have loved to preach on the idea of a new land and a new man. Because what Miranda is telling us is that in order to become a new man, he had to go to a new land. See, there's a lot of you, you're sitting in here and you want to be a new man. You want to be a new woman. You've gone through a lot of hurt and heartache and hang up and you want a new beginning. But I want you to know that the scriptures teach that you ain't got to go to a new land to become a new man or a new woman. All you got to go to is the right person. All you got to go to is the right person. You become a new man, new woman, just like that. 
In New York, you can be a new man. Just you wait. Just you wait. Then we see this. Alexander Hamilton, we're waiting in the wings for you. We're waiting. Like, we're celebrating you, man. Like, we're waiting for you. Do something great. And then here's, here's the kicker right here. This is the main, this is the main verse, main stanza in this song. When America sings for you. So what Miranda is saying is that when you look at Alexander Hamilton's story, it's not if you will sing for him, it's when you sing for him. Like that's what he's saying. And, and why? Well, will they know what you overcame? Will they know you rewrote your game? You, you rewrote your story. And, and, and the world, well, look at this, the world will, will what? Alexander Hamilton. This is it. This is the key. This is the key verse to that song. And then look at what people say of Alexander Hamilton. Well, we fought with him. Me, I died for him. Me, I trusted him. Me, I loved him. And me, I'm the fool that shot him. Now, if we took that out of context, I promise you, you can apply that to Jesus. We fought with him and Peter tried to fight with him, cut off a guy's ear. And then I died for him. I mean, a lot of people in the world throughout the 2000 years of church history have died for him. They trusted him. They loved him. And then I just want you to know that we all, we all killed him. The, the Bible says that we, because of our sin, Jesus died. So it wasn't just the Romans and the Jews that, that conspired together. Yes, in God's sovereignty, he used them, but we all killed Jesus. Now, you take that, you take that song that Miranda wrote, and you're, you're looking at now this, this legacy of Hamilton. Do, do you know what Hamilton, do you know what his accomplishments were? He was a clerk, college student, poet, essayist, an artillery captain, a wartime adjutant to George Washington. He was a state assemblyman, a constitutional convention member, an orator, lawyer, an educator. He was the, pat- uh, the patron saint of the New York Evening Post. He was a foreign policy theorist, a major general in the army. He was one of the principal architects of the founding of the American government. He was the first secretary of treasurer. He was the author of the Federalist Papers. He was a figurehead, an intellectual fountainhead for the Federalist Party, and he accomplished all of this in 49 short years. And so when you look at this song, and when Miranda, when he has created this song, here's his conclusion about Hamilton. America should sing for, celebrate, and honor Alexander Hamilton because his life, works, and legacy helped found and forge a great nation. This is what he invites us into. To sing for him, to celebrate, to honor him. In fact, the author, uh, Ron Chernow, who wrote the book Alexander Hamilton that inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda to create his play, here's what he noted in his book. Today, we are indisputably the heirs to Hamilton's America, and to repudiate his legacy is, in many ways, to repudiate the modern world. So again, they're they're inviting us in to celebrate this man for what he overcame, how he rewrote his game, and that America, if you enjoy living in the land, in this free land called America, you ought to sing for Alexander Hamilton. Now, 
I want us to turn our attention now to the biography and the historical story of Jesus based upon the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, out of these four gospels, you have two that were eyewitnesses to Jesus. Those eyewitnesses are Matthew and John. Two of them, Mark and Luke, they are not eyewitnesses. They investigated and interviewed eyewitnesses. And they all wrote their accounts somewhere between 30 and 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Not only do they tell the story of Jesus, they actually record the very words that Jesus spoke while on earth. Now, I know what some people would say, well, they're just not reliable documents. They, they actually are reliable documents. And in our series, in our TED series, the very first week, I'm going to speak to us of why we can hold the Bible in authority and why they are reliable. But I'll just give you one reason right now. What reason did they have to write a fictitious story about Jesus? It's not like all, I see all of them didn't conspire together and say, let's all, all write four different perspectives of Jesus so that we can become wealthy, so that we can become, you know, bestsellers on, 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 on in New York. They, they didn't do that. Uh, th there was no, there was no gain for them in writing this story if it was fictitious. In fact, all of these accounts led to the persecution of them, many of them having to give their life. So if, if they are being persecuted for what they wrote and it's fictitious, don't you, don't you think that they would kind of wave the white flag? Whoa, whoa it, it was just a Harry Potter story. I mean, listen, we, we don't believe any of this. Like, please stop. Like, they don't. They don't. They're reliable documents by eyewitnesses who claim to see Jesus and hear his teaching. So, uh, based upon their writings, I want to tell you the story of Jesus. According to these writers, Jesus was born of a virgin. Her name was Mary. But most people did not believe that Mary was a virgin that miraculously conceived and gave birth to this boy they named Jesus. So they believed that Jesus was born out of wedlock, that he was an illegitimate son. Uh, Mary and her husband, Jesus' adopted and earthly father, Joseph, they were poor peasants from Nazareth. Just so that you know where Nazareth is, let me put up a map. Uh, Nazareth is up here in the northern part of this land called Israel. Here is Jerusalem. The reason why I show you Jerusalem is at that time, even today in the 21st century, that is the hub of what, what goes on there. Uh, Nazareth was this podunk town. Like, in fact, and Nathaniel, who would eventually become one of Jesus' followers, when he heard that a potential Messiah was here and he came out of Nazareth, here's what Nathaniel said. He said, can anything good come from there? Meaning, man, only country bumpkins come from Nazareth. Rednecks, people who love NASCAR and chew tobacco and spit. That's, all, that's, that's where they come from. They come from Nazareth. Now, we don't know much about Jesus' childhood, we really only have two recorded incidents. The one was early when he was born. Herod heard that there might be a Messiah that was born, the, the next king of Israel. And so, because he's insecure, he 
issues this, this command that all of the baby boys two years of age and under, they need to be slaughtered in Bethlehem. Well, Joseph is warned by an angel in a dream that you need to flee, take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt. So they do, they flee to Egypt. They spend a couple of years in Egypt. So we have that uh, record. But then the only other recorded incident that we have of Jesus's childhood was when he's 12 years old. And that is actually found in the gospel of Luke. Joseph and Mary, they had went with a caravan to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So as they're packing up, getting ready to leave and dally, Jesus is playing and they're like, okay, he's, he, he'll, he'll come, he'll come with the, the friend or he'll come with another set of, uh, you know, family members or whatnot. And so they leave Jerusalem and about a day later, they're like, where's Jesus? And they've lost Jesus. And so they go all over the caravan going, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? And they're like, no, we haven't seen Jesus. And so they hightail it back to Jerusalem and they start going to family houses and friends' houses and like, did did we leave Jesus here? And they're like, we haven't seen Jesus. Three days pass in Jerusalem and they finally find Jesus in the temple talking to teachers and elders, listening to them and asking questions. And so when Mary runs up to Jesus just like any mom would and like, you scared us to death. Where have you been? You know, all that. You've probably seen that. Here's what Jesus tells his mom. (laughs) Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Like I could have saved you a lot of trouble, woman. If you would have just looked for me at my father's house. I'm a a friend's house, our family's house, my father's house. So that's the only record we have of Jesus from his childhood. And so the gospel writers, they actually pick up Jesus' story when he's about 30 years of age and he launched his public ministry as a rabbi and teacher. Now, by this time, Joseph, he has... We think that he has passed because he's no longer in the picture. So it's just Jesus, his mom, and his siblings. Now, the problem that, that many have during this day when Jesus shows up as a rabbi and teacher is that he had not been to seminary. He had not been to rabbi school. So they look at Jesus and his family and that his dad was a carpenter. And he's like, you need to, they, you need to stick to being a carpenter. You have no business being a rabbi, a teacher. You have haven't even been professionally trained. So they they had a problem with Jesus in his teaching. But people were mesmerized by his teaching. In fact, this is what Matthew writes. When Jesus had finished saying these things, when he had finished teaching, the crowds were amazed for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers who taught religious law. So, so he's a fascinating, uh, a widely respected teacher because he's not doing what all the other teachers, he's teaching in a quite different way with authority, with conviction. Now, what did Jesus teach? What did he teach? Well, I'm about to put a series of slides up of what Jesus taught from his own words. Uh, These are not topics that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gave commentary on. No, these are the red letter words of Jesus. They are pinning these words down and they're saying this or these things are what Jesus taught. So here's what Jesus taught in his three years of ministry. He taught that he came to fulfill God's promises. That when you look at the Old Testament, 
And God issued all of these promises to his people. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. He came to proclaim good news. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, to the oppressed, to the marginalized, to the sinner. He has come to proclaim the year of Jubilee. And then he taught that people need to repent of sin, that every single one of us, we are sinners by our very nature, and we need to repent. We need to change our mind, and we need to, we need to tune our heart. He taught that he has power and authority to forgive sins. So in Mark chapter two, he's getting ready to heal a lame man. And you have some religious leaders, they're really upset because they hear Jesus say that he has, he's going to forgive this, this man of his sins. And they're like, only God can forgive man of his sins. And Jesus is like, well, basically I am him. And just so that you know I am him, let me tell you, uh, let me tell this man, hey, get up and walk. This guy gets up and walk, which validates Jesus's authority to forgive that man of his sins. And then... He taught that the kingdom of God had come, that when you saw him, you saw the inbreaking kingdom of God. You saw the rule and reign of God in flesh on planet earth. He taught that his followers are called to represent the kingdom of God. Uh, this is found in the Sermon on the Mount. He elevates the game too. He says, well, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery in his heart. I mean, he elevated the game. And so what he's telling his followers, like, if you're going to follow me, you got to elevate your game. And then he taught his followers are called to make disciples of all nations. So from, from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group, I want you to proclaim. I want you to be my witnesses all over the world. He taught people how to pray, how to communicate, how to commune with God. He taught about the Father and the Holy Spirit. So he taught in John 3 that God the Father so loved the world. He taught about the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit is the comforter, how the Holy Spirit is the guide for his people, how the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin. Uh, Jesus taught that he was the Messiah, the anointed one. So in Matthew 16, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And so they're like, well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're John the Baptist. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say I am, Peter? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you know what Jesus says to him? He responds and says, Simon bar Jonah, only God in heaven has revealed that to you because flesh and blood would not have revealed that to you. So what he's saying is what you have said, ding, 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 you are right. He also taught that he was God in flesh. So he taught people that if you see me, you see God. He taught that he had come to seek and to save the lost. He taught he had come to give his life a ransom for sinners. In other words, sinners have a debt that they owe to God that they cannot pay. And so Jesus says, I have come to pay the ransom, my life for yours. Jesus taught that those who are weary and heavy laden, you can come to him. So if you are weary and heavy laden by religion, you can come to Jesus for rest. If you are weary and heavy laden from life, your hurts, your habits, your hangups, if you're weary and 
and heavy laden, you can come to him for rest. He taught that he had come to save the world, not condemn it. Why? Because the world already stands condemned. He taught that he was the bread of life. If you eat from Jesus, you'll never hunger again. You will be fully satisfied. He taught that he was the light of the world. He taught he was the gate for the people to be saved. He taught that he had come to give new abundant life. That Satan, he's the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But he is the good shepherd come to give you new life. And not just any kind of new life, but abundant, full life. He was the good shepherd that lays down his life for his sheep. He also taught that he was the resurrection and the life, that he was the way, not just a way. He was the truth, not just a truth. And he was the life, not just a life. He taught that he came to die for the sin of the world and be raised on the third day. And then he taught that his kingdom was not of this world. That's one of the reasons, once again, why we should not be culture warriors, because this isn't the kingdom of God. All right. So anyways, I'm, I, I just, I, I diverted. Sorry. He also taught, you see, he taught a lot, right? He taught that those who reject him will spend eternity separated from him in hell. So Matthew 7, here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does my father's will. He also taught for those who do believe in him, they are born again, becoming part of his new creation. He's talking to Nicodemus, a religious scholar of the day. And he's, and he's telling Nicodemus, who is quite intrigued by his teaching, like, master, like, what do I have to do to be saved? He's like, well, you must be born again. And so Nicodemus is scratching his head. Well, how can I, how can I re-enter my mom's womb and be, you know, be born again? Like, no, no, no. Like, Nicodemus, I can't believe you're a teacher of the law. You know all of the scriptures, yet you don't know this. No, you need to be born spiritually anew. And then Jesus taught that he's coming back for his people. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I'm done, I'll come back for you. But not only does Jesus has, have a robust teaching ministry, he also has an extensive healing and community-oriented ministry. He, he healed the lame, the mute, the deaf, and the blind. He even put an ear back on a fella after Peter chopped it off. He healed, a, he healed lepers and many who were sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He walked on water. He calmed a raging storm. He turned water into wine. He fed, he fed multitudes and thousands of people with just a handful of loaves and a few fishes. He elevated the oppressed and the marginalized. He honored women and children and elevated their dignity and worth. He engaged people that were considered at that time unclean and sinners. And the result of his teaching and preaching and healing and community-oriented ministry, he actually became well-known throughout the region. Look at what Matthew and Mark say. People went out and spread his fame all over the, re over the region. And news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region. I mean, like, so this is, this is the messianic rock star. He's come. However, not everyone appreciated Jesus' rise to fame. And prominence. I mean, he's drawing large crowds. He's threatening the, the religious institution. He's challenging the status quo. He's threatening 
their loss of power and control. And so as a result, he generated a lot of enemies. People would publicly challenge him. They would try to get him to misspeak. They conspired against him. They, they actually lied about him, trying to destroy his reputation. He even was betrayed. He was arrested, beat, crucified on a criminal's cross. He was treated as a criminal. But here's where the story of Jesus takes a different turn. More so than any other person in the history of the world. Because when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at the other five, test, five New Testament writers and most of their recipients, here's what they believed. They believed Jesus didn't stay in the tomb but rose from the dead. That's what they believe. And so they believe that Jesus' resurrection from the dead signified that he was who he claimed to be signified Jesus's power over death, over hell, over sin, over Satan. It validated and confirmed his teachings and his claims. And they believed that the resurrection provided ultimate hope for a weary, dark, sinful world. And in over 2,000 years since Jesus's death and resurrection, Billions have loved and trusted him. In fact, 2.4 billion people today. Millions have died for him. In the last decade alone, over 900,000 people throughout the world have paid the ultimate price for their faith in Jesus. Billions have fought against him in one way or another, but they have not stopped him in over 2,000 years. And furthermore, in over... 2,000 years since Jesus' death and resurrection, we have his living legacy that we have to contend with. And note, I said living legacy because you can go to New York today and you can find a tombstone with the name Alexander Hamilton, but you will not go to the promised land. You will not go to Jerusalem where Jesus died and you will not find a tombstone with Jesus Christ lays here. You won't find it. Because we believe, just as the gospel writers wrote, that Jesus rose from the dead, that he sits at the right hand of God, making intercession for his people. He has sent his spirit to guide us, to live inside of us, to empower us. Therefore, it is a living hope. It is a living legacy, and we have to contend with his living legacy. Well, what's his living legacy? Well, he split the world's calendar in two, uh, B.C., A.D., or B.C., or common era. Eventually, he eliminated the worship of the mythological gods of the Roman Empire. Every major religion today regards Jesus as a significant figure. He founded schools, hospitals, orphanages throughout the ages. He cared for the least of these. He elevated the marginalized and oppressed. He sanctified life. He elevated the way many see women and children. He was the most powerful force at abolishing slavery. He dignified all kinds of work. He spurred on innovation like the Gutenberg press. He was the 
catalyst for the scientific revolution. He gave birth to the most charitable givers the world has ever seen. He provided power to unify us in our diversity. He paved the pathway for individual rights and freedom. He had more written about him than any other person in history. He had more songs sung about him than any other person in history. He has impacted societies, cultures, and governments, and he's made cities safer, healthier, and more stable. Listen to what Rodney Stark says in The Rise of Christianity. Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of societal relationships able to cope with the urgent problems. To cities filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. What they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities tolerable. And then his living legacy changed and transformed the face of the world. I came across an article written in the New York Times in 1985. And the author quotes a Yale historian who says this about Jesus. Regardless of what anyone may personally think of, believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. Well, there's a lot of negatives that have happened in the last 2,000 years, though. Yeah, I, I get it, and I will give you that. There have been a lot of times Christians, churches, and the church, they have not represented the Christ of the Bible well. I will give you that they have misrepresented him. They have mischaracterized him through their behaviors, through bad theology, and through abuses of power. Yet still, you have to deal with, and you cannot deny, the overall positive and ginormous impact the living legacy of Jesus has had on the Roman Empire, the Middle Ages, the medieval times, modernity, and all the way up to the present day. I like what I found in J. Warner Wallace's book, The Person of Interest. He's quoting here. Why then did Jesus have more impact than anyone else? Jesus was born in a tiny, irrelevant town in the Roman Empire and raised in a, another small village. He had to walk from one place to the next, and as an adult, he never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He had none of the resources people have today that make an impact. He had no social media platform, praise God. I'm, I'm just joking, sorry. No, no, no podcast audience, no clever videos, and no website. He didn't even have resources people use in the first century to make an impact. He never ruled a nation, 
never had held a political office, never led an army, never wrote a book. His family was insignificant. The locals thought he was an illegitimate son. His mother was a poor peasant and his father couldn't afford much. Jesus didn't have an expensive education, never married, never had children, never owned a home of his own, and he didn't possess much more than the clothes on his back. As an adult, his family was suspicious of his ministry, a work that ended after just uh, three short years. Public opinion turned on him. Most of his followers abandoned him. One disciple betrayed him. Another disciple denied him. He was rejected by the religious. He was hunted by the powerful. He was mocked and unjustly persecuted by his enemies. He suffered an unfair trial, was publicly humiliated, brutally beaten, and unduly executed in the most horrific way. Even then, a few of his followers who did remain had to take down his body and put it in a borrowed grave. Yet this is the man who changed history. He inaugurated the common era and forever transformed the most important and revered aspects of human culture. And here's what Wallace, here's the question that he, he poises. How is it possible that a single man, a man like Jesus could have this impact? I want you to sit on that one. And if you are having organic, natural, good conversations with with friends and family members and colleagues that are far from Jesus, pose that question in, a, in an honest way. How is it possible that this man, this, this, this man single-handedly could have this impact? So it is in light of this question and to taking into account the life, the works, and the living legacy of Jesus and applying the same kind of logic that Lin-Manuel Miranda applied to Hamilton in his characterization, his depiction, and celebration of him. Here is the conclusion that we are forced to make about this man called Jesus from Nazareth. And here it is. The entire world, people from every nation and tribe and tongue should worship Jesus of Nazareth because his life works and living legacy, his death and resurrection single-handedly gave birth to new creation. That's the conclusion. Listen to this. Applying the same logic to Jesus of Nazareth that Miranda applied to Hamilton Jesus doesn't, Jesus just doesn't deserve a song, a play, or an attaboy. Jesus demands our ultimate love, devotion, and allegiance. Anything less would be a devaluation and a disregard for who he claimed he was, who he is, and who he always will be. What's his name, church? Jesus. His name is the name that is above every name. It is Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It is at the name of Jesus the righteous run into his name and they are safe. It is his name that we love. It's his name we trust. It's his name we are devoted to. It's his name that we worship. His name is Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you. Thank you 
that we have a God in heaven that loves us so much that sent his one and only son, the king of the cosmos, to redeem us, to ransom us, to save us, to forgive us, to give us a new heart and a new life, to make us your people, a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group. We actually do thank you for men like Alexander Hamilton that you used in a common grace way to help forge and form a, a great nation. But he, he pales in, in comparison. He's not even worth being mentioned in the same sentence to our king. And so I pray that just a message like this would deepen our faith in Jesus. A message like this would give us just confidence, confidence to just have a conversation with someone who's watched the play Hamilton. But to get them to think about the impact of Jesus. We're getting ready with your head bowed and your eyes closed. We're getting ready to observe communion. Because what a great moment to observe communion after what we've heard about Jesus. So communion is something that the Bible talks about that we should do often. And we do it once a month here. And communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist as it has been named was instituted by the Lord the, the night before he would be betrayed, arrested, then eventually crucified. And as he's in the upper room with the 12 disciples, he takes a loaf of bread and he begins to break it. And he begins to distribute it and he tells the disciples to eat of his body. The body that will be in just a few short hours beaten, a few short hours pass, so that our body might be healed and made new. And then he passes a cup around to his disciples and he says, drink of it. This is the blood of the new covenant. Drink from it, all of it. And then he tells them that the next time that you will eat and drink will be in the new, fully established, consummated kingdom. And so what we are about to do, church, in observing communion, the Lord's Supper, is we're going to remember what Jesus did. We're going to remember his death and resurrection. We're going to renew our commitment to him. And we're going to look forward in great anticipation to him coming back. So I'm about to pray and then the band will come up and begin to lead us in amazing grace. When you are ready, you can sit there and you can take communion when you're ready after you've, you've, you've communicated, you've communed with God, you've renewed this relationship with him. You can come up to the altar if you, want to, if you want to come and you want to pray and then take 
of communion, you can. At any point during the worship, if you want to come up here to the altar, it is open. But you take communion when you're ready. So, Father, thank you once again for your great love for us and, Jesus, your great sacrifice and that you are the king of our life. You are the king who is making all things new. And, Spirit, we are grateful that you have empowered us to live out this kingdom life in the here and now. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.